All right. Well, um, I want to get things started this morning by talking about the concept of a paradox. Are you all familiar with the idea of a paradox? A paradox is when two or more even seemingly contradictory ideas are true at the same time. Um, the Christian faith is actually full of kind of paradoxical things that Jesus teaches things a lot of times that are paradoxes. And so, you know, it, it's about things like uh, if you want to be first, you're going to have to be last. Um, if uh, uh, you want to be great, you need to be a servant to everyone. He says, if, if anyone wants to save their life, they're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll save it. These are things, it's like, wait a minute, these are, these are opposites, but they're true at the same time. It's this paradoxical way of thinking. And we're going to explore uh, what is, uh, I, would, I would consider it to be probably the most uh, difficult and uncomfortable paradox today that there is in the Christian faith. And to get us moving in that direction, though, I want to talk about a different paradox that's not something necessarily that is found uh, in scripture, but it points to this idea that we're getting at today. And the paradox I wanna start talking about is what's called the Stockdale Paradox. I don't expect anybody to raise their hand, but has anybody ever heard of the Stockdale Paradox? No? Okay, that's, that's okay. That's, well, yeah, of course you guys did. You heard it in like the, the sound check volunteer service. I got the sound team back, like, we've heard of it. We've heard of it. Um, <laughs> thanks, Ben, I like that hand up back there. Stockdale Paradox was something that was coined, uh, this phrase, by um, Jim Collins, who is a kind of a business leader, speaker, has written a bunch of books. Um, and he kind of develops this idea in his book, Good to Great. Uh, and it, it's named after a guy by the name of Admiral Jim Stockdale. Maybe you've heard of that name, maybe you haven't. But Admiral Jim Stockdale was the, um, the highest ranking POW to be held uh, at the Hanoi Hilton in the Vietnam War. So this very infamous uh, prisoner of war camp. Uh, Stockdale, like I said, is the highest ranking official to be held there. Uh, and he was there for eight years. So from 1965 to 1973, he was a POW at the Hanoi Hilton. And... Um, Collins interviews him, kind of asks him about that experience and like, how did you make it through? How did you survive? What's the secret, if you will? Uh, and in his answer, we arrive at this thing called the Stockdale Paradox. So I want to give you his answer and talk about it for just a minute. He says, I never lost faith in the end of the story. I never lost faith in the end of the story. I never doubted not only that I would get out, but also that I would prevail in the end. And, and this to me is like the really crazy part, and turn the experience into the defining event of my life, which in retrospect, I would not trade. He says, here's how I was able to survive those eight years. I constantly remember this isn't where the story ends. There's something past this that I'm gonna get out of here. And that part's kind of crazy in and of itself to think like, how can you be in those circumstances and think that? But also to go, and someday, you know, 30 years in the future, I'll look back on this and say, I'm grateful for that experience because it made me who I am and it shaped my life. And it's like, wow, that, that's, a, that's a crazy kind of thought. And Collins pushes a little bit further to get a little bit more clarification because it's like, well, are you just, are you telling me that you're an optimist, right? Are you telling me you're just kind of, is this just kind of look on the bright side? Because sometimes we tend to do that, just kind of look on the bright side, think positive thoughts. Uh, and so Collins asks him, well, who didn't make it out? And Stockdale says, oh, that's easy, the optimists. The optimists are the ones that didn't make it out. The optimists, they were the ones who said, we're going to be out by Christmas. And then Christmas would come and Christmas would go. And then they'd say, we're going to be out by Easter. And then Easter would come and Easter would go. And then Thanksgiving and then it would be Christmas again. And he says, they died of a broken heart. It's, like, it's not just optimism. I think, I mean, optimism's fine. It's good to have a positive outlook on life, right? Like it's good to kind of think the best about the future, but that's not enough. 
Sometimes we think it is, right? There's this kind of thinking that permeates our culture and honestly, it gets into the church too. Like if I just, if I just believe that the future is gonna be better, if I just look on the bright side, it's like, I mean, that's a good perspective to have, but it's not a magic, optimism is not a magic pill. And so it's gotta be more than that. And so Stockdale kind of sums it up and brings like the point home by saying this. He says, this is a very important lesson. You must never confuse faith that you'll prevail in the end, which you cannot afford to lose. It's like, you have to have that trust. You gotta believe that the story's not over. You have to have faith and a hope that there's a future greater than this, but don't confuse that. Don't substitute that for the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. That's the paradox. To be able to look at my current reality, just the brutal facts of reality, and, and recognize that, and not try to ignore that, not try to pretend that's not happening, but then at the same time go, but there's a hope and there's a future, and it's not always going to be like this. Two things that seem like they are polar opposites, but they're true at the same time. Faith that you'll prevail in the end, at the same time confronting reality, that things will be good, but right now they're awful. They're terrible. Stockdale Paradox. There's a very similar thing that takes place within the Christian faith, uh, and we're going to be confronted with it in our passage today. Um, so we're going to take a dive. We've been going through the Gospel of John for, I don't know, two years now. It's been, it's been a while, a year and a half, something like that. Uh, we're taking our time, taking breaks here and there, and today we come to John chapter 11. John 11 is um, a pretty famous encounter that Jesus has. Um, it becomes known as, it's just Jesus raising a guy named Lazarus from the dead, but that doesn't come till the end of the chapter. Uh, like the, the whole encounter, it's like 40 some verses. And so we're not gonna get to all of it today. We're just gonna cover the first half. And the first half leans much more into, I would say the brutal facts of current reality than the happy ending of the story. Because sometimes when we come across things like this, we're already reading it with like the end in mind, which is, is, a, is a good thing, right? To be like, I know Jesus is gonna raise Lazarus from the dead, but I don't want us to rush to that today. I want us to sit in the, the kind of uncomfortable tension of like, okay, there's pain here and there's brokenness here and there's suffering here because one of the big kind of disservices I think that modern Christianity in our context does is we make it just like happy all the time, right? It's just like, I mean, shoot, we even do it when we come to church. How are you doing today? I'm just great. I'm blessed. Everything's wonderful. Meanwhile, my week was awful and my world is falling apart, but I'm like, no, it's, it's church. I'm supposed to be happy and, and, and I'm supposed to have, you know, be excited. And it's like, yeah, but let's not rush past the, the idea of, of grieving and let's not rush past like this, this lost art of lamenting, of being like it is broken and it is not good and it is not supposed to be this way. That's what we're gonna be confronted with today. So John chapter 11, we're gonna jump in, starting in verse one. Here's what John says. A man was sick, Lazarus from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. A man was sick. Now this is a, a pattern actually that is in John's gospel that, that we become familiar with. Somebody was sick, somebody was hurt, somebody was paralyzed, somebody was blind. John records for us seven miracles or seven signs, not including Jesus' resurrection. That's like the eighth one. But things that Jesus does, we would call them miracles. But John tells us that he's writing his gospel that, that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing we would have life in his name. And so John's like, I'm gonna uh, organize some of the things that Jesus has done, some of the miracles that he's performed, because I want you to see them as signs, pointing to the identity and the reality of who he is. And of those seven signs, four of them have to do with healing someone, including raising Lazarus from the dead here. And they all kind of have a similar feeling and a similar start. It'll say a man or a certain man. And so, you know, there was a, there was a certain man who was paralyzed for like 38 years. 
There, there was a man, Jesus and the disciples are walking by, and there's a, there's a man who had been born, who'd been blind from birth. There's a, a certain royal official who comes and finds Jesus and says, my son is, is sick. And so there's this pattern, and this time we think, oh, that's what we're expecting again, just some guy, a certain man. But John's like, there was a man who is sick. Wait a minute. Not just any man, but a man named Lazarus. Because unlike the other people, this guy's not a stranger to Jesus. This is someone who Jesus knows. This is someone who he loves. This is someone who knows and who loves Jesus. Lazarus and his sisters, they, they are connected to the life and to the ministry of Jesus. Jesus had like these 12 disciples or 12 followers, but then there was also a larger group of people that were part of his ministry that were around all the time. And this family would have fallen into that group. They were friends with Jesus. Jesus hung out at their house. They didn't have refrigeration back then, but I like to believe that Jesus had refrigerator privileges at their house, okay? You guys, you guys have friends that have refrigerator privileges? I remember growing up, I had friends that had refrigerator privileges, and my, my parents loved that, okay? The fridge, the cupboards, all of it, right? But it's like, it's like, it's that kind of relationship, just like, hey, guys, I'm here. So John's like, I want you to know that the nature of this relationship, who exactly this person that's sick is that we're talking about, um, where they're from. This is Lazarus, who Jesus knows. Verse two, then he says, Mary, Lazarus' sister, was the one who um, anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair, and it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. You're gonna see over these couple of verses, John is going to go out of his way to remind us and kind of to um, demonstrate and to highlight the nature of the relationship that Jesus has with this family in the closest of relationship. He's gonna mention it several different times in several, several different ways. Uh, he does so here, telling us what this thing with Mary here in verse two. Um, John is telling us something that chronologically has not happened yet and literarily it's hard to say, literarily has not happened yet, meaning it doesn't happen until the next chapter. John chapter 12 is when we read about this, but John's like, I need to pause, and even though this hasn't happened yet and you haven't read about it yet, I need to insert this detail because I want you to know who this family is to Jesus. So in the next chapter, you see this, this moment where um, Jesus is at their house and Mary brings out this just ridiculously expensive perfume and pours it on Jesus' feet and she kneels down and wipes his uh, feet with her hair, which seems weird to us, but in that culture, it's just this sign of extreme honor in love, in devotion. John's like, I want you to know who these people are. They love Jesus. And he has a, just a deep relationship with them. Uh, he, he wants us to know that everything that he's about to say over the course of this, uh, this encounter is coming from and exists within the context of that kind of relationship. Just deep care and affection for these people. So it's Lazarus, it's Mary and Martha and the sisters, Mary and Martha, they send a message to Jesus and they say, Lord, the one that you love is sick. So a message comes. And it's interesting the way that John records it. It drives home this point again, like there's no name mentioned. There's no, hey, Lazarus is sick. There's just, hey, like there's messengers coming from Mary and Martha. Lazarus isn't mentioned. So all they need to say again is that Jesus, this is somebody that you love. Oh, you're talking about Lazarus. It's also interesting that there's no request made. Like, there's no like, hey, you know, we need you to heal him. Will you come and do something? Like, they had seen Jesus heal before. This is towards the end of his ministry. They had seen all kinds of stuff. They had seen Jesus uh, heal people from a distance. They're like, and, and so the, John, I think, is driving at this idea of like, Jesus loves them. Jesus loves Lazarus. He doesn't, they don't even have to mention his name. And Mary and Martha don't even need to ask because certainly if Jesus healed strangers, he would heal his friend, Right? 
Lord, the one that you love is sick. And we step into this, this paradox, this really, really uncomfortable tension right here in one sentence, in one message. Lord, the one you love, Lazarus is someone that you love, you care about, Mary and Martha is someone that you love and you care about, and at the same time, he's deathly ill. You love him and he's going to die. These two things are true at the same time. And that's hard. That, that, that's the thing that for us is like, I, I, it's like I believe Jesus loves me. It's like, it's like his love goes and it like takes breaks. He loves me and something's bad happening. Maybe he doesn't love me as much then. And then after I get through that, he loves me again. Because to hold the two together at the exact same time and say, like, the God of the universe loves you and has died for you and cares about you, and you're going through the stuff that you're going through right now. It's a hard thing for us to hold on to that tension. But John's like, and that's not just just an us thing. That's 2,000 years of people trying to follow Jesus, like, struggling with that concept. I think that's a problem then, too. So John is going out of his way to highlight this. He's like, guys, I know this is difficult, and I know this is, this is hard. John's writing this when he's an old man. He has seen all kinds of pain. He's seen all kinds of loss, but he's also seen the love of God. John is the same person that pens this letter where he says, we try to sum up what God is, and he says, Here, here's the best definition I have of God. God is love. First person to ever utter those words or speak that into like culture and existence was, was the apostle John. And here he's saying that the God that is love and you being sick exists at the same time. Jesus loves you and sometimes really bad things happen. Sometimes life is terrible. It shatters this, this notion that kind of permeates our culture and honestly has gotten a lot into the church as well, this idea of karma. Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. If you do all the right things, good things will happen to you. We, 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 we paint like God on that and say, if you, if you live the right way and do all the good things, then, then God will bless you and your life will be easy and it'll be perfect. But that's actually not anywhere that we see in the gospel or in the life of Jesus. It's actually quite the opposite. It's Lord, the one you love is sick. Love and sickness happening at the same time. And, and it, I think it's, it's hard at first, but it's actually a really freeing thing to know that like my behavior does not determine my lot in life. Like to have that pressure taken off of you to like when things are going really, really poorly, it is not a reflection of something that you have done. I mean, sometimes we do stupid things, right? But sometimes there's things that are completely out of our control and it's, it's like, wait, this, this isn't something that I've done. This isn't a reflection of like, you know, I'm not a good enough Christian or whatever. Sometimes life is just hard, in fact, this is, this is one of those things that I hear a lot of stories from people and hearing conversations about like walking away from faith, right? It's like, yeah, I used to go to church. I used to be a Christian, but now I'm not. And so often one of the things that gets cited is like, I just saw too many bad things happen to good people. There's too much pain in the world. There's too much brokenness in the world. And so, so I lost faith in God. And I'm like, okay, so you, you, you lost faith in a God who doesn't let bad things happen to good people. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, well, good. Because that God doesn't exist. Okay, like I don't have faith in that God either. The Christians have never believed that God doesn't let bad things happen to good people. And in fact, it's quite the opposite. That our faith is built on this idea that, that the, the God allowed the worst possible thing to happen to the best possible person. That Jesus, like the, the son of God, the perfect sinless, fully God, fully human, never did anything wrong, was brutally tortured and murdered for crimes that he did not commit. And it's like, 
And in that picture, that is the cross, where Jesus goes to the cross, he pays for our sin so that we can be freed from all the, all the guilt, all the shame, all the sin that we've ever committed, and the power of death has been defeated in his resurrection. The cross is the paradox of God's love and pain and suffering at the same time. Because it is an act motivated by love, but at the same time, it is, it is brutal, and it is suffering, and it is pain, and it is death. And it brings us to this place where one of the most beautiful things about the Christian faith when it relates to this idea of pain is every single worldview has to deal with pain and suffering and, and all of those things. Christianity comes along and says, it's not some, God's not distant. He doesn't say, well, it stinks to be you guys. You made that mess. You clean it up. He doesn't just like wave a little wand and say, it's not that big of a deal. Just deal with it. But that we believe that God actually stepped into our pain, that he became human and experienced every ounce of pain and suffering that we do to redeem it and to restore it and to drive us to where he wants the story to end. Lord, the one that you love is sick. He loves Lazarus and his current reality is not good, both at the same time. Jesus hears the message and he says, this sickness will not end in death, which if you're the sisters, if you're the disciples who know Lazarus, if you're the messengers, that's what you wanna hear, right? You're like, perfect, perfect. That's the answer we were hoping for. Whew, good. Let's get back to, all right, Jesus, heal him any second now. Five, four. Like, no? Okay. Like, this will not end in death. It's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. The sickness will not end in death, which if you're familiar with the account, you're like, I mean, I guess it technically doesn't, but it kind of does. Lazarus still dies. Like, there's a, a happy ending to the story, but the middle part, it's really rough. Lazarus still dies. And when we take a closer look at like the, the timing of the events, there's something that's shockingly significant. So at the end of chapter 10, what happens right before this? Jesus and his disciples, they're, um, they're out in the wilderness. They're in the area where John the Baptist did his ministry. So that's where they're hanging out. And we read that Lazarus and Mary and Martha from, are from this village called Bethany. And so for the messengers to get from them to where Jesus was, it was about a day's journey. So it took a day for the messengers to get there. It means eventually when Jesus leaves to go and go to the family, it's gonna take a day for him and his disciples to get there. That's two days. And we're about to read in a couple of verses that in the in-between, Jesus waits two days. That's four days. Four days from when the messengers originally left to when Jesus finally gets there. And when he gets there, and we'll see this next week, he's at the tomb and they're like, Lazarus is already dead and has been in the tomb for four days. In other words, when these messengers left Mary and Martha on day one, Lazarus was alive. By the time they get to Jesus and say, the one that you love is sick, he's already dead. By the time that they get to Jesus and he's like, the Lord, the one you love is sick, Jesus knows something that nobody else does. He's, he's thinking, actually, it's, even, it's worse than that. He's not sick. He's dead. And yet, while that's true, he still says the words, this sickness will not end in death. I know, I know he's dead right now, but that's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story. It's for, God's, it's for God's glory. The brutal facts of current reality is, hey, Lazarus is not just sick, he is dead. That is the reality that we're looking at, but the future hope and the faith is that that's not where it ends. Something else is going to happen. And this is, this is so difficult because in situations like this, what we like to do, and, and it's natural and it happens and I do this and this is where I live, we get so caught up in the here and in the now and in the process and in the details. And Jesus is like, I want you to see beyond that to the final product. 
I want you to see what I'm doing because you'll only understand the process in the details, in the here and now, in the pain, in the moment. You'll only understand that properly if you know where it's going, if you know what comes next. He says, this is not gonna end in death, but it's for God's glory. Now there's something kind of interesting going on here in chapter 11 that a lot of the details parallel really well what happened in John chapter nine. So John nine, Jesus heals this blind man. We looked at that um, part 27 of the series. If you wanna go back and check it out, I can't uh, recap the whole thing. But there's a man who's born blind and the disciples are like, well, who, you know, whose fault is this? Who sinned? And, and Jesus goes and teaches them basically, listen, it's not anybody's fault, like per se. It's just the fact that we live in a, a, a world that is infected by sin and evil. And because this whole world is infected by sin and evil, there is pain and there is suffering and there is loss and there is death. And, and in the context of that, that miracle, Jesus says like that it said that he's gonna be glorified, that he's gonna be revealed for who he is. And so there's a very similar thing that's happening here, that because of the effects of the broken and sinful world, that's why Lazarus is dead. But Jesus is going to do something through that. He doesn't cause it, but he will use it to bring about his glory. And in one sense, glory is like the praise of God, it's the worship of God, but it's also, uh, it holds a greater significance in John's gospel of the revealing of the nature and the character of who God is. Like when he says the son will be glorified, it's we will see more clearly who Jesus is and go, wow. That he opens, uh, John opens his gospel in, in chapter one by saying that, it says that we have seen the glory, the glory of the one and only son from the father who is full of grace and truth. John, John's purpose in writing is I want Jesus to be revealed to you. And something about what's going to happen now that Lazarus has died is going to reveal something of Jesus to us. Jesus is like, you are going to see who I really am and what I am here to do through this. The son of God is going to be glorified. Lord, the one you love is sick. Jesus is like, okay, it's not gonna end there. Even though he knows he's already died. And what does John tell us again? How Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Again, John's like, I don't, I don't want you to forget the context of which this is happening in. Jesus loves them. He loves them three different times. He loves them. He cares deeply about them. He loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Now, I, I don't want us to, to miss this because literally the way that it is structured in the Greek is that, that Jesus' love for Martha and Mary and Lazarus is tied to the reason why he is staying. Like literally, it, it's so or therefore or because Jesus loves them, so he's staying. Jesus loved them, therefore he's staying. Jesus loved them and because he loves them, he's choosing not to go right away. I don't know about you, but that's, that's hard for me. I've got a green flashing light on my pack, so um, I'm probably gonna need batteries or a handheld. Just, just be prepared for the, <laughs> my voice to go out. Well, that's not gonna happen. We know that. Um, <laughs> but the people online won't be able to hear me. Um, that's hard for me. Because in my, like the delay, the delay is actually caused by God's love. In my life, when God delays, when I'm praying for something, when I want something and he's delaying or he's saying no, I automatically jump to the conclusion it's because he doesn't love me. It's because I've done something wrong. It's because something is amiss. That, that's why he's delaying. That's why I don't have it right now. That's why he said no or, or wait or, or maybe later. 
But John, again, is bringing to light the paradox. It's like, no, he can delay and love you at the same time. He loves Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And he's going to do something about what they're experiencing. And, and, the, and the delay and him staying there, it's motivated by love. That doesn't make it any less painful, any less agonizing. I, I don't want to brush past that and just paint this like all happy and like, you know, this is all motivated by love. Like Jesus intentionally prolongs their agony by two days. Like, yes, Lazarus had already died, but, but for two, like, he could have left right away and spared them two days of grief and be like, all right, let's just get this whole raising Lazarus from the dead, get that over with, and, and we'll be good to go. And there's a reason he waits, and we'll look at that some next week, but he could have gone right away. But it would have undermined some of the good that would come out of it. That, that, that if he would gone right away, it would have been one thing, people were like, wow, this is great, he raised Lazarus from the dead, but because of those two additional days, something much greater happens. And people see Jesus in a, in a better way, and Mary and Martha are gonna experience him in, in a bigger way. He stays where he is two more days. And then after you know, the two-day little hiatus, he tells the disciples, all right, let's go to Judea again. Um, and the disciples are like, Rabbi, just now, the Jews tried to stone you, and you're going there again. So at the end of, end of chapter 10, this is the last thing we looked at when we were uh, in John's gospel. They're in Jerusalem. They're at the, 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 um, the Feast of Dedication. And uh, Jesus gets into some hot water with the religious leaders because he's like, hey, yeah, I'm God in the flesh. I and the Father, we are one. And they're like, well, we're gonna pick up rocks and throw them at you until you die. And so Jesus and his disciples kind of uh, go out into the wilderness, let things cool off a little bit. And now for Jesus to go from where he is to where Lazarus is, they've gotta go back through the area of Judea when the last time they were there is like, they're trying to kill you, Jesus. And so the disciples, you know, are, it makes sense. They're a little, uh, um, a little apprehensive about going back that direction. They're like, hey, last time we were there, they tried to kill you, Jesus. And so we're looking out for you. And also, we don't know how good their aim is, okay? So maybe we're looking out for us too. But are you sure you really want to go back there? Does it make sense that you want to go back there? And again, I think this is John also pushing us to this reality of like, why is he going back? Why is he going to risk his own life? Because he loves Lazarus, he loves Mary, and he loves Martha, and the risk is worth it. That he's willing to be hurt for them. He's willing to put his life on the line that actually a short time after this, he won't just put his life on the line. He will die for them and for you and for me, motivated out of love. And so he heads back. And they have this kind of objection um, to him heading back. And then Jesus does what <laughs> Jesus does, and he, you know, he goes like, I don't know, Jedi master teaching mode here. And you're like, what are you talking about? It's like, oh yeah, they're, they're, gonna, they're gonna try to stone you. And he's like, aren't there 12 hours in a day? <laughs> sure. Uh, the way that the Jews kind of kept track of time is 12 hours daylight, 12 hours dark, like the time when you work and the time that's night. So he's like, there's 12 hours in the day. If anyone walks during the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks during the night, he does stumble because the light is not in him. Thank you, Jesus. That really calmed our fears about getting stoned to death. We appreciate that. But what he's, he's getting at is the idea um, behind his mission. He understood why he was there. He, under, well, he understood the threats that awaited him. But he knew the urgency of the mission that he had. 
that this was drawing near the end of his ministry on earth. The imagery of the day and the night. The day is, I'm not going to be here much longer. And while I'm here, I am here to do the work of the Father. So we are going to go to Lazarus and I'm going to go and do what I am here to do. I'm going to raise him from the dead. Again, this, this parallels John 9 and the healing of the blind man because there's this point in that encounter too where Jesus says, we must do the works of him who sent me while it's still day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. And he's like, guys, I'm not worried about their threats. I, I'm, I'm here to do something. I am here to, to show the world that I love them and I've made a way out of sin and out of death and out of evil. My concern is doing what God has put me here to do. So I'm going to Lazarus now. You coming with me or what? Verse 11, he said this and told them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm on my way to wake him up. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll get well. You know, because sometimes when you're sick, you just need a good nap, right? Let Lazarus sleep. And Jesus, however, was speaking about his death, but they thought that he was speaking about natural sleep. And I think Jesus is way more loving than to do this. But if there was ever like moments where Jesus is just like face palm, like this is one of them. Like, guys, come on. So Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. He's died, guys. He's not sleeping. He's dead. All right, so glad we're clear on that. So wait a minute, Jesus, now you're telling me, now you're telling me that he's dead and you know that and you still want to risk being stoned to go back to him? What is going on here? Verse 15. Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe. But let's go to him. Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad for you that I wasn't there. Again, this doesn't make sense to us. This is a paradox. What do you mean you're glad? How can you be glad that Lazarus is dead? He's like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not just glad in the fact that Lazarus is dead. I'm glad in what it will lead to. Like Jesus can be glad and weep and be broken and sorrowful at the same time. Again, we'll, we'll encounter this next week, but, but like it's often said like, hey, the, the, the shortest verse in the Bible, we're gonna get to that next week. It's two words in English, Jesus wept. That when Jesus shows up at, with Mary and Martha and they're at the tomb and, and, and there's all these people mourning and Lazarus is dead and they're mourning the loss of their brother, even though Jesus knows he's gonna raise him from the dead. In just a few minutes, everyone's going to be celebrating. Everyone's going to be joyful. But in that moment, Jesus weeps. He steps into their pain and into their brokenness. He grieves with them. He mourns with them. Even though he knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, he still felt the pain and the grief that was associated with it. And while he's experiencing that deep personal loss and pain, at the same time, he can be glad and have joy it's like, I'm, I'm glad for you, not that Lazarus is dead, but that, I mean, that breaks my heart, but I'm glad for what will come about through it. Because through this encounter, through what happens, the grieving will be comforted in a way that makes no sense, that they will experience the peace of God in a way they wouldn't have in another way. I'm glad because through this, God will be glorified and the son of God will be revealed as to who he is and what he's here to do. I'm glad because through this, ultimately this will be the final straw for the religious leaders. This will be the thing that pushes them over the edge and says, we can't have this Jesus guy anymore. We have to kill him. And they begin to conspire to have that done. It will be the final straw that pushes them to murder Jesus, to murder the Son of God so that he could die for the sins of the world, for you and me and for bringing life to everyone. And Jesus says, for all of that, 
I'm glad. I'm glad that something greater is going to come from this. Verse 16, that's our last verse for this morning. And then Thomas, called twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go too, that we may die with him. Um, Thomas gets a bad rap, man. Thomas is awfully known as, anybody know? Doubting Thomas. It's just horrible. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, you guys know, like, we're going to see him someday, right? He's like, yeah, thanks a lot, guys. For 2,000 years, I've been doubting Thomas. And it's like, I mean, like, he's like, you know, everybody else was doubting too. I'm not the only one. I'm just the one that was brave enough to actually speak up and say, hey, I need to see the holes in your hands, Jesus. Um, but Thomas is also quite courageous. Thomas called the twin. Uh, it's interesting, like, people are like, well, Either he had maybe a twin, or there's a very early church tradition that says among the disciples of Jesus, he was the one that bore the closest physical resemblance to Jesus. But he speaks up and says, let's go too, so that we may die with him. Now, Thomas, like what's implied here, the way it's structured, is not that we may go and die with Lazarus. It's that we may go and die with Jesus. He's going to a place where, in their mind, he's going to get killed. They're going to stone him. And he's like, okay, I guess we die with him. Like his response is the right response. Okay, Lazarus is dead. Jesus, it seems like you're walking into certain death. This makes zero sense, but I'm with you. And there's a lot that we don't understand. There's a lot that we don't like. There's a lot that confuses us. There's a lot that hurts. There are times, oftentimes, when our hopes and our plans and our dreams get thwarted, there are times when life happens. And in those moments, it's like the response of Thomas, okay, I don't get it, Jesus, but I'm with you. If I got to die with you, I guess that's what it's going to be. His response is the right response. And that right there, that's where we're going to leave things today. Yes, the story ends with resurrection. And next week, we're going to get into that. And we're going to celebrate that. And it's going to be wonderful. But I don't want to rush to that point. I don't want us to rush to get that. I I want us to to sit for a while and experience a little bit of what Mary and Martha and all those that love Lazarus experienced over the course of those four days, just waiting for Jesus, wondering, where are you? Why aren't you here? Why didn't you do something? I want us to sit for a little bit in the uncomfortable tension between a Jesus who loves us and a world that is awful sometimes between a Jesus who's died for sins and risen from the grave and is bringing all that about, but yet the current reality is just awful. I want us to confront the brutal facts of our reality, whatever they may be and whatever it is that you may be going through, while at the same time not losing hope in the future. It's not always gonna be like this. And that the story is going somewhere and it is moving towards resurrection. I wanna encourage you during the course of this week to make the message from Mary and Martha and those messengers for that to be your prayer because that is a prayer that God honors. Lord, the one you love is sick because you are the one that he loves. And I don't know what sickness looks like for you. Like it may be you're actually dealing with sickness or it might be a mental health thing or it may be a family member you have who is suffering or it may be, you know what, I lost the job, I didn't get the job, the career's not going how I wanted it to, the relationship blew up, he left, she left. I, 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 whatever it looks like to be able to go in prayer and say, Lord, I'm sick and I know you love me and I'm experiencing pain and I know you love me. Lord, the one that you love is sick. You're invited to come to him with that posture 
and he will hear you and he will respond in the same way that he responded to those messengers. This sickness will not end in death. It's not the end of your story. This sickness will not end in death. Death may be your present reality, but it's not the end. It's not your future. Things will change about what you're experiencing. They may change next week. They may not change until the next life. That part, I do not know. But I do know that at some point, it will change. That you can live in that uncomfortable and. Jesus loves me and everything is falling apart. Jesus has died for sin and risen from the dead and it feels like my world is just exploding around me and I don't know if I can make it. He loves you. It is the Stockdale principle as it lives out in our faith. There is the current, the brutal facts of our current reality and yet there is a hope and there is a future that it will not always be this way. And so to close out um, the message today, we're gonna, we've intentionally moved our time of communion today to after the message instead of before because in our kind of day-to-day and in the world that we exist and what we do as Christians, followers of Jesus, nothing embodies that tension better than when we come to the Lord's table because it brings us to this moment and this picture of just pain and suffering, but at the same time, hope and a future. That the pain and the suffering of Jesus on the cross, but then his resurrection and defeat of death. And what has happened for him and the resurrection that that he experienced, that he brought into the world is something that we await one day as well. So every week we gather as a church and we do this. We come to the Lord's table and we take a little piece of bread that represents Jesus' body that was broken for us. We take a little cup of juice that represents his blood that was poured out for us, that in love, the God of the universe went to a cross and bore the weight of our sin and our shame and our guilt and all the evil that has ever been unleashed on the world. And he took that into himself. Three days later, he rose from the dead. He defeated the powers of sin and death once and for all. And he invites us into that to say, this is your future too. And so I wanna invite you to come to the table this morning. And I just invite you to whatever, whatever your current reality may look like, and bring that to Jesus. To be at a point where, where you can trust and hope that it's not the end, that you would hear him saying that to you. And so I'm gonna pray for us here in just a moment. And then as you feel led, you can make your way up the right side of the room, grab communion, and then head back to your seats. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you so much that you are the God that loves us, that you see us, that you hear us when we are crying out to you in the pain and the brokenness of the world around us. We thank you that you are not a God who is distant, that you did not just look from afar um, on our pain, on our suffering, on our brokenness, much of which we caused, what we unleashed on the world. You didn't just say it's your problem, deal with it, but you stepped into existence. You became a human. You lived the perfect life to show us what what it looks like to love God, to love neighbor, and you died on the cross. You rose from the dead. We thank you for that. We thank you for the hope that we have in that. Lord, I pray for those that are going through just extreme difficulty that the brutal facts of their current reality is almost too much to bear. Lord, I pray through the power of your spirit that you would be the God of all peace, of all comfort to them, that you would be the God of strength to them, that you would allow them to experience something that they don't even think is possible in this moment, your peace and your hope and your joy. 
Lord, this week as we go out into whatever awaits us, may that be our posture and our perspective, that our eyes would be constantly fixed on Jesus and the hope that we have in him.